beautiful song, one of my favorites. Um, of course, I love so much of Chris Tomlin's music, but I remember the first time I heard that, I cried at the drop of a hat anyway, but I was sitting there, tears just came to my eyes, and I thought, man, that's the good news. Chains set free. What a great truth. You know, life is often hard to figure out. At times it can be complicated. At times it's not real clear. It's nice to be able to have an arena to which the rules are easy to see. And they're clear. One thing I like about sports, at least for the most part, you have a set of rules and you have these guys that somebody always hates in these striped uniforms. Referees, umpires, people that make sure the rules are enforced in a game. And Man, if guys get out of line, start fights or whatever, they get kicked out of the game. They can't play in the game because you've got to follow the rules. And you have a clock and it's amazing. It's so precise, not only to the second, but to the tenth of a second. And a lot of times you have instant replays now. Uh, games that are televised to make sure that the game stays in its boundaries, stays in its borders. But life's not always that clear. It's not always that precise as it is in a game. Another place where life is clear is a cemetery. Someone has said that everyone's level at six feet under. And there's a lot of truth to that. As much as we would like to deny the fact that we are all dying. There's evidence of it all around us. We are alive, but we move toward death. And, and that has to be dealt with. There's no way to run from that truth. There's no way to avoid it or to miss it. Because we all are dying. The good news is that God knows that as well. And He's given us hope. In our culture, many people don't understand what Easter's about. They think the big miracle is that a bunny can have chocolate eggs, you know. But there's much more to this day than that. This, another name for this day could be Resurrection Day. Because it is the day where the grave is empty, where death is overcome, and where there's victory. And what I want to do this morning is I want to go through the book of Luke and just briefly look at little snapshots at the ministry and earthly life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the risen one. And sometimes we, those of us who have been in church for so many years, we we've heard the story and we've heard the story, and maybe for whatever reason, it's been a long time since we really heard the story. And so we we want to begin and look in Luke 2 and then march on through and look at the great truth of the day. But uh, before we jump in there, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to You, as we uh, think of this great day, Lord, Resurrection Day, Thank You for Jesus, that He's alive, that His life offers life to us, hope to us, God. And I just pray that You open our hearts and our ears and that we might hear the story, God, of how You came and You walked among us. and God, how You faced death and how You overcame it. 
and how that hope is there for us too. And so, Lord, just speak. Take the weakness of my words and infuse your power. And may your spirit just teach us, Lord. We need to hear from you, God. So uh, help us, Lord. Thank you for being here. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, guys, when it comes to rules, uh, there's traffic rules out there. One of the hardest places to be a Christian is on the highway. I have, I have a pastor friend of mine. He says that... Uh, you know, he, he don't want to be a bad witness so he doesn't put Christian bumper stickers on his car. And, you know, we know what that's like. It's really tough sometimes. To, you know, sometimes I've really made a fool out of myself on the road and my kids question my Christian witness out there, you know. And then I end up doing something just about as stupid a day later, pulling out from somebody or something. Then I want more grace. You know, there's definite rules. If you run through a stoplight and a policeman sees you, too bad. Or you run through a stop sign. You know, I remember someone telling me one day, stop does not mean slow toward off-speed position. And we have a tendency to run through those stop signs. But as we look at the life of Jesus, we see one who looked at times as if he was breaking the rules and regulations, but he was always keeping them as they're meant to be kept. Let's look. As uh, we look at Jesus in Luke one thirty-seven. As we march through, we have these simple words. For nothing is impossible with God. Now let's think about God as He reached out to us. Nothing's impossible for God. There was the virgin birth. Which is the truth of when Jesus entered this world, His mother, flesh and blood Mary, that He was born of the Spirit of God, of God Himself, the Heavenly Father. Joseph was a foster father. Not His true dad. That's the Heavenly Father. Virgin birth, a great miracle. But it's proof that He's fully man, but He's fully God. He's the God-man. And as you look through His ministry, we see in Luke chapter 2, that as He grew at the age of 12... It says in verse 41, Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve, he went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, we read that his parents went away and they realized he wasn't with them. They thought that he was lost and they went and searched for him and they discovered he never was lost. He, in verse 47, we we read, everyone who heard him, heard Jesus, was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Jesus said, I wasn't lost. I was where I'm supposed to be. In my father's house, doing my father's work. Even at a young age, he was giving evidence of his true identity. As he was showing others. Then we jump over to Luke chapter 4. We read about him as he goes into the temple. He taught in the synagogues. Everyone's amazed. They praised him. Then down in verse 17 of Luke 4, it says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. He had taught. He he had been baptized by John and and the voice of the Father said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Now He comes, he, He speaks to the people and He reads from the prophet Isaiah and He basically says, This is me. This Scripture is talking about me. This prophecy is speaking about me. And God has sent me and here I am. And people were amazed as He taught as they began to see that He is more than just a man, that God was upon His heart and God's upon His life. And others looked around and said, Now wait a minute, isn't this a guy that's the young carpenter He was learning how to work with wood. What is happening here? Well, they were beginning to get a taste of he was more than just a carpenter's son. He was more than that. Then we move over to Luke chapter 5. And we read about him. As he approaches a guy who has a shriveled hand. And we learn how... God would heal him, how he would work with him. Um, and we're told that at that that um, he he came and he touched him and he worked with him. Uh, actually Luke six 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 it says on another Sabbath he went in the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched Him closely to see if He had healed on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with a shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So He got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Why were they mad? Because they were used to being the referees. They were used to being the ones who interpreted the rules of how to follow God and serve God and how to be good people who obey God. And when God came before them, He basically was saying, you're not the referee, you're not the umpire, you're not the one that calls the shots. And they got angry. And they basically struck back and saying, you're not the one to call the shots to tell me how to live and, and to tell others what's right in serving and obeying God. It's my life. I'm in control. Jesus came, He changed all the rules, and they became furious. And the sad thing is, there's no way to really fight against God. If we don't like what He's doing, guess who's going to lose? I'm going to lose. And you're going to lose. We have to bow our hearts to God. They came, and and they were angry as He spoke, because He didn't follow their ideas. Jesus was not some milk toast or a mild pet. He's Lord. He's in charge. And then we find Jesus as He ministers, as He takes the twelve apostles, as He finds time where He needs to go and to be set apart to 
pray, to be in solitude with a heavenly Father as He ministers to great crowds who come before Him who are so needy. And He didn't turn people away, but He loved people. And He invited people to come to Him. And He touched them and He healed them. And and He ministered to them. And He had time for them. And then He was betrayed. His disciples were looking for someone who was going to bring in a kingdom and make life easy, but really He came to die. In Luke 22, we we read about how things got bleak. Um, starting at verse 47. It says, While He was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this, and he touched the man's ear and held him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness begins. The power of darkness. We've This week as we've thought about his death, as we've thought about how he suffered, how he hung on a cross and how he was placed in a tomb, how his followers came and they prepared the body and and they laid him to rest and there was a stone and was placed against the door of the tomb and it was sealed and it was over in the eyes of those that were watching. But we come today realizing, guys, that it wasn't over. What must it have been like? Uh, I actually want to read from the words of Philip Keller in his novel, Rabbani, that writes a description of what it must have felt like in that day. I think Keller writes it better than I could share. He says, His frightened followers huddled in little knots in their rented rooms. Over and over they relived and recounted to each other the drastic events of the preceding week. Each had witnessed the final dreadful drama from a different perspective. So they sat, often in tears, deeply mourning, telling each other of their tales of grief. The Master had met an enigmous end. There was no future for them. It was back to the old life, back to the boats for Peter and his pals. What none of them knew was the titanic triumphs taking place beyond the narrow horizons of their little cells. They could not see beyond their tears and heartache. They were so preoccupied with their own personal problems and grief, they could not grasp what was happening at the grave. Imagine it. We think so little about what happened between the crucifixion and the resurrection. No man's hands unwrap those heavy spices around him. No man's hands unwound those cloths that bound him. No man loosed the bindings around his face or set him free to go. No man's hands rolled the great rock doorway. No man's hands broke the seal around the boulder. No man struck the guards to the ground outside. This was only and all the work of God. In a split second... Before the tomb was ever opened for us, 
to get in. He had departed up from the grave. He rose. He rose. What was that stone like? That stone that was rolled away. This is Merrill Tenney's description of that. He says, uh, Many of the tombs in Palestine were hollowed out of soft limestone, leaving a low doorway for access. Outside the doorway and parallel to the wall of the tomb, a narrow inclined groove was cut in which was set on edge a large circular stone, usually weighing not less than a ton, often more. While the tomb was vacant, the stone was held at one side by a cleat or small block placed beneath it. After a body was placed in the tomb, the cleat was removed and the stone settled in place, covering the door completely. Because of its weight, it could be rolled back only by the united effort of several strong men. It made an effective barrier against vandalism and robbery. It could not have been moved by the women nor the disciples assembling a large group could do it with maintaining secrecy. No, God moved the stone to let us in. That's a good news. You see, what's impossible for man is possible for God. You know, certainly there was a heavy fog covering the graveyard and as the ladies carried spices up that hill as they went to the tomb and they met those dazzling angels. And, and surely it was magnificent as they fell and they heard the voice, Why are you here looking for the living among the dead? He is risen. Man, what a message! What a hope! And sometimes we hear it so much, we forget how awesome that must have been. How dazzling it must have been. Looking for the dead, and He's the living one. He's not there. The angel said, God, He's not in the tomb, ladies. He's gone. He's alive. He's risen. You're looking in a cemetery for one who's alive. It's it's, uh, interesting. In Sunday school, we looked in Matthew 28... And there's something here almost humorous we overlook in Matthew 28 about what the soldiers were instructed to say about this empty tomb. In Matthew 28, starting at verse 11. Look here, it says, While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. You know, we never really talk about this, but how can they be sure that's what happened while they were asleep? I mean, when you're asleep, do you remember everything that happens? I think I told you guys a story, one of the most amazing things. One time when I ordered pizza, my dad was asleep and he ate pizza while he was asleep. But he didn't remember he ate the pizza while he was asleep. And we don't remember what happens either while we're asleep. What a stupid argument. You didn't really know what was going on while you were asleep, guys. You're just saying, you know, we don't really know what happened. Well, I'll tell you what happened. The stone was rolled away. And it was not rolled away by people, it was rolled away by God. The, the stone wasn't rolled away to, to keep Him in, it was to keep us out until the appropriate time. To see that Jesus was alive. And that He was Lord. We see uh, 
as we read in another Gospel, Peter and John, as they rush to the tomb, John stops. We talked about that briefly this morning. Why did he stop? Hesitation. Uh, was he afraid what he might find inside? Was he thinking in his mind, uh, what's happened? We don't know for sure. He eventually went in, but he saw and he believed. And it's amazing as you read in there and you, you read that there was the cloth. The head cloth and it had been folded. And uh, we mentioned this morning, service was talking about it. I heard a youth speaker several years ago. He said one of the greatest miracles in the Bible is that a single man folded his clothes. And I thought that's so funny. But, but here's a picture of it was carefully folded, this head cloth. Grave robbers wouldn't have come in there and taken the time to carefully fold this head cloth. But it was a picture of the fact, I've heard the commentators say why it was folded, and I don't know for sure, but the bottom line is the truth, is that God was there. God was meticulous. God was saying, He's here. He's alive. And we can trust Him. That's our hope today. Um, as I close, just a couple of statistics in our culture. People do believe in eternal life. Uh, that was interesting. Um, I read this week on the internet, as I was reading statistics, said that 76% of people believe in the existence of heaven. And this one really shocked me. It said 71% of Americans believe that there is a hell. It's like, wow, you're kidding. But here, here's the interesting thing. Although 71% believe that there is a hell, only one half of 1% believe that they could possibly end up there. We're all headed toward death. And I don't know any preacher that likes to talk about the reality of hell or condemnation. Well, there might be a few. Okay, I take that back. But I certainly don't like to. You know, the truth is, the Bible says that we all are undeserving of His grace. None of us deserve His mercy. But the truth is, He loves you with all of His heart. He loves all of us, guys. He loves us so much that He came and He lived. And man, did He live. But the whole time that He lived, it was with a purpose to die. And do you know why He came to die? So that you might live. And that I might live. And guys, I would be amiss if I didn't say to you, come to that life. You know, sometimes people think that Christians, that, you know, we've got our nose stuck up in the air and we think we're better than everybody else and that stuff. But the truth of the matter is, when you catch a real glimpse of Jesus... You know that you're messed up. And you desperately need somebody to forgive you. And to give you hope. And to let you know that you're loved even though you're messed up. And God did that at the cross. He did that by the empty grave. The grave is empty and when you come to the one who's alive, He says your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgotten. And you have new life. That's what, that guys, that's what we want to share with you. Don't miss that life. He invites you if you have never just said, Lord, forgive me. I believe that you're alive, that you have died for sin and for me. 
and that you offer new life. And, and I, I just ask you guys, please don't leave here today if you've never just asked Jesus to forgive you, to live in your heart, to give you a new life. The grave is empty for a reason. He's alive and He wants you and me to have that life. And uh, so we're going to have a time, we call it an invitation or response. Basically it's time to come to the altar to pray, to say, Jesus, you know I'm a mess and I'm coming to you because you love me. And Lord, I just want to start fresh. I just want to serve you new. Maybe you're here and you're his kid, but you just need to do that. And the altar's open to pray. Maybe for some reason you've just never trusted him before. You've never really asked him to live in your heart. You've never been made a new person. One who knows he's forgiven is for you to come to pray right where you are, to come forward before people. Because he says to do that, it cements a decision to come before God's people and say, you know, Jesus changed my life today. He made me new. And it's new and so I want you to know. You may need to come for that reason. Or you may need to come to be baptized, which is a picture of that to say, Jesus has changed my life. He's come, He's lived inside. But I haven't shown you what He's done in my life. And so I want to come and enter the baptismal waters and show you that Jesus is real to me. He's forgiven me and He loves me. Guys, we just want to do business with God. We're going to pray. I'll be at the front, stand, sing. If God's spoken to you, come. Just to say yes to Him. Let's pray. God, it's good to be in Your house today, God. Resurrection Day. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, it's certainly not because we deserve You. It's certainly nothing we've done, nothing that we can boast about. It is simply the fact that you and your perfect love are alive, risen from the grave, offering hope to us who are flesh to have a life that's forever. And uh, Lord, as we come to you, we're so grateful for that invitation. And Father, I just pray that as the invitation's extended this morning, God, that our hearts and ears are open and however you're speaking to us that we might respond today that we might say yes to how your spirit tugs at the heart and father we just speak to us and may we obey thank you for allowing us to be here today to worship you the risen lord lord we love you father just bring us to you in your name we pray amen